Amen. Good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, welcome. We are jumping into a brand new sermon series today in the book of James. Uh, if you're new around here, one of the rhythms we do at City Church is we try to go through a New Testament book and an Old Testament book verse by verse every year. <clears throat> and then in between, we will walk through some topical messages that are just relevant to what's going on in our life and in this world. And we want to resource you well. So on your way in, you should have gotten a green James journal. If you have that, would you raise that up in the air? Let us see. If you don't, we'd love to give you one. Uh, Jim is in the back. He can get you one. If you just raise your hand up, we'll grab one and get that to you. But grab that. We're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. All right. At the Academy Awards, the undisputed best actor of all time, Jim Carrey, and by the way, the undisputed best movie with the star rolling actor Jim Carrey, Dumb and Dumber, received his reward that night uh, for the Academy Award. And he, he walked up to receive it and he says, you know, when I go to bed at night, I don't lay my head on the pillow and I don't think my name is Jim Carrey. He goes, I go to bed and I think my name is two-time Academy Award winning best actor Jim Carrey. And one day, I will go to bed thinking I am three-time Academy Award-winning Best Actor Jim Carrey, and maybe then I will finally be satisfied. Then he goes on to say, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they've ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. For some reason, most of us have grown up with this myth, this myth of accomplishing our goals, and if we'll just accomplish our goals, make more money, and be the most successful version of ourselves that we can be, then we will actually have the security necessary to be happy. We want the path of least resistance most of the time, don't we? Maybe, maybe you've been there. Maybe you find yourself there right now and you just think, if I could just get that raise, if I could just get a little more money, then I would have the margin that I need necessary and then you get the raise and what do you do? If you're anything like me, you figure out a way really quickly to spend the amount of money that you were and you're just as broke as you were before and never any happier. Or you think, if I could just get married, I could just get married, I would have my fairy tale life and we'd live happily ever after and if you're a guy, you know what you're thinking, I would get that all the time and we all know that none of that's true. Jim Carrey and tons of other people have realized that you can have everything that you've ever dreamed of, and yet you can still be unhappy, because life's greatest desires aren't found in getting more accumulation of stuff. Today, we're going to start a brand new sermon series through the book of James that we're going to walk through until the beginning of November. And what I want you to see is that James is an incredible book for so many reasons. James is actually different than most books in the Bible. It is a New Testament proverb, if you will. James is five chapters that have 54 imperatives, meaning do this, do this, do this. James is not really worried about the why behind the what. James is basically saying, if you'll do what I tell you to do, it will work out. Also, the book of James, what's fascinating is it's the oldest book in the New Testament, it predates anything written by the Apostle Paul. It predates the famous Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where they decided on some of the doctrinal statements that would shape Christianity moving forward. The book of James predates anything written, and that's important because it's still a development in Christian theology. So what you have to see is that James is writing these imperatives, these do statements, but the undercurrent of that is the gospel. And maybe the most important thing about the book of James is who James himself was. James was the half-brother of Jesus. By the way, think about what it would have been like growing up with Jesus as your brother. 
You think, man, that's so cool. Not really. You ever get in an argument with Jesus? You're not going to win, right? You're fighting as eight-year-olds, and you're like, dude, you won again. Every time you got aggravated at him, your parents are like, but it's Jesus, so it's your fault. Go to timeout, no matter what. He would have been a 4.0 student, got principal pal every single month, and he never fought back with you, except every time that you got in an argument, he would give you a witty Jesus juke that would make you feel worse about yourself. Y'all, it would have been hard, but one of the best evidences in the entire Bible that Jesus really is the Son of God is James, because what would it convince you to believe that your brother was actually God? I don't know about you, it would take an act of God to believe that about my brother. And you know, all jokes aside, James had a really hard time believing that about Jesus. Matter of fact, history tells us that James didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God until at the resurrection. You see, the resurrection changed everything for James. James went from a skeptic to becoming the most influential pastor at the most influential church in the known world. That Jerusalem council that happened in Acts chapter 15 happened at the church in Jerusalem where James was the pastor. He was known as James the Just. James the skeptic had turned into what most people call James the Just because he was a humble servant. Matter of fact, early church historians uh, historians would tell you that James, his nickname was James the Camel Knees because they said that you would walk into the church at any given time and James would be on his knees praying for you. That's who James was. He was not only the brother of Jesus, he was James the Just who cared deeply about people. He was James the Humble who wrote the very first book in the New Testament. And the entire point was how do you find joy in this life? So here's the deal. If you will take these 54 imperatives seriously that we are going to walk through over the next several months, what you will be is you will be the happiest and the richest person who has ever lived because you will find that joy, the secret to joy, is not in the accumulation of stuff, but it's in the presence of God. So let's jump into James chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Yo, James begins this letter in one of the most striking and humble and important ways possible. That word servant there, how he describes himself, is the word doulos. It's literally a slave to God or a bond servant to God. Think about this. Think about the humility in that statement because whenever I look at my social media or yours or your LinkedIn account, we don't tend to start off by saying that we are servants or slaves to God. We tend to put our big fat resume out there. And James had one, wasn't he? He was the most famous megachurch pastor. He came from the most iconic mom on the planet, Mary, and his brother was literally the son of God. And yet the most important thing that James says about himself is he's a servant or a slave to God. I don't know about you, but that's not quite what my social media looks like. It's not quite what I see out there. For many of us, it looks something like this. Education, Harvard of the South, Georgia Southern, right? Marital status, obviously outpunning my coverage. Just look at her. Occupation, humble church planner, successful humble church planner. Like that's not, that's what we do, but that's not what James does. That's not what he does at all. He says, I'm a servant of God. And he's not only a servant of God, I highlighted it for you, highlight this in your Bible, of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there's been a lot of conflict over the book of James. 
Was James a Christian? Obviously he was. If you look at the Greek construction of this sentence, he calls him the Curio Iesus Christu, which literally means Curio, the Lord of Christ, meaning the anointed Messiah. He is telling you that my brother is the Lord of all, and he is the anointed Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one that everything in this world rests on, and I worship him. Again, what would it take for you to call your brother the Lord Messiah of the universe? That's what James calls Jesus. See what the resurrection does. He took a skeptic to a man who falls down on his knees before his brother and calls him Lord anointed Messiah. The promised one that the entire Old Testament points to. By the way, James is writing to a predominantly Jewish crowd that converted to Christianity. This is a big, big deal. He's telling them, my brother is the one that the entire Old Testament is pointing to. And I'm his slave. I'm his servant. And I will worship him. Who is he writing this letter to? Really important, the 12 tribes of dispersion. Now, what we know is because it's so early on that these 12 tribes of dispersion, he's writing to a Jewish crowd, but I've showed you this a while back in the book of Revelation, those 12 tribes are actually the significant or signifier of the entire church. He's writing to believers who are persecuted and dispersed. <clears throat> Being a church follower, being a Christ follower, I'm sorry, in the first century AD would have been incredibly difficult. It would not have been a walk in the park. Most scholars, again, believe that this book was written in the early 40s AD. Imagine that. Think about the time period. Jesus would have been crucified less than 10 years prior to this. Stephen was just stoned. Paul was on a crusade to stop the church from growing. The, you're just 30 years away from the Emperor Nero burning down the temple and going to war against Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are at their height. Things are not going so well. And yet, and yet historians would tell you that at this moment, about roughly 50% of the entire city of Jerusalem had converted to Christianity. By the way, that is one of the greatest apologetics for why Christianity is true. Any historian will tell you that there has never been a worldwide religion that just popped up out of nowhere, and yet that's what happened to Christianity. So if you're ever talking to a skeptic, ask them to explain to you how that happened. There's no other explanation other than the resurrection. So you can deny the resurrection, but you cannot deny that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people started following Jesus immediately. James is writing this book to a bunch of believers who had been persecuted so badly that they had to flee from their homes and they're literally refugees all over the known world. That's important. Why is that important? Because here's what you need to remember. God has a bigger plan than you can normally see on the surface. That's so important. The greatest evangelistic strategy in the entire world was the diaspora was God's people who had been persecuted and sent out. Rodney Stark, a great um, historian of the church, tells you this. He says that the evangelistic strategy of the early church was that God persecuted his people, sent them all over the world, and then his people lived with intentionalities in those places and became church planners, and then the church grew. That's always been God's plan. Every time that persecution arose, God forced his people to flee, started churches, and brought joy to areas. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. If you actually look at it, the markers in the point of Acts are this. Persecution happened, the church grew, there was freedom. Persecution happened, the church grew, there was freedom. Persecution and the church just continues to spread. Listen, the whole point is this. One of the most important reminders that you can ever have is this. No matter what you're going through, God knows exactly what he's doing and he's got a plan, even if you can't see it. That's the undercurrent point, the big idea of the entire book of James. Look at it. Look at verse 2. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's read that again and read it slowly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I don't know about you, but when I read this like three or four times, here's what came into my mind. James, what are you smoking? What are you talking about? Count it all joy. Obviously, you don't know what I'm going through because there is no joy in my suffering. But remember the context. Think about who he's writing to. James is writing to believers who are literally refugees because of religious persecution. He's writing to his mom who watched her son be beaten half to death. And then after he was beaten half to death, hung on a cross naked so the world could see him suffer and die. He's writing to you. How do I know that? Look at that, my brothers. That phrase there, my brothers, means to every single Christ follower. James isn't some guy that doesn't know what's going on. By the way, Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says, hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. I've heard it said that life is simply one trial after another until you get to the end, that suffering is just as sure as death and taxes if you're over the age of 10 and you don't live in your mom's basement. All of us, all of us are going to go through hard stuff. And James, James is telling you to count it all a joy and he's not a trust fund kid living in Manhattan with no problems. James is literally face to face with some of the worst situations on the planet, the worst situations that humanity can throw at you and he says, count it all a joy. You want to know what the meaningful life is? It's finding joy in the middle of your trials. It's not wasting your suffering. By the way, that word count, it's an important word. It means something like this. It means to press into your trials, to press into your trials and ask some of the deeper questions, to consider what's really going on. He's saying, as you suffer, you need to ask, why God? Why am I going through this? I know that things are hard. And I know that a lot of us are dealing with some of, the, some of the most difficult challenges we've ever dealt with, but if you'll take that thread and you'll trace it backwards, what you'll find at the end of that is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is there, and that's why he says, count it all a joy. And that word all, that word all is really important. If you can put that um, sentence back up there, last verse. In the English, you'll notice where the word all is, count it all a joy. In the Greek construction of that sentence, it's in the primary position, which means that it's the very first word of the sentence. And James does that on purpose. Here's why he does that, because he's telling you that it's important to understand that all of us are going to experience joy, and every bit of what you're going through has to be counted as joy. All of it, no matter what you're going through. Listen to me. When the cancer diagnosis comes, he says, count it a joy. When you get the angry email, you, you know what I'm talking about, and you just want to count it a joy. When the wayward child is going through what they're going through, count it a joy. Like Paul. Like Paul told the Corinthian church. You remember this? He says, church, I'm overflowing with joy in my suffering. Or the book of Acts where the apostles, they said that they rejoice in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus after they had been beaten. Counting it a joy is a choice as you're going to see. Next word is he says when. Count it all a joy when. He doesn't say if. That's really important because, listen, all of us are going to go through incredibly challenging seasons. All of us. And when you go through that, what James is telling you, when you face the music, you're going to have to make a decision. When that time comes, how am I going to view it? When the cards are dealt, 
and the results come in and it's devastating, are you going to count it a joy or not? See, one of the keys, one of the keys to living a life that's worthy of living is deciding ahead of time, before you walk into the trial, that you are going to choose to walk with Jesus and count it a joy no matter what. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your suffering is, you are going to lean into God. You have to choose that before you go into it or else you won't do it. And here's why. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See it? There's something about suffering and testing that creates a staying power for a lifetime of faith. Y'all, I know this isn't easy stuff. But suffering or trials is the vehicle that God uses to make you become more like him, to make you become the person that you're supposed to be. It's in the testing that God creates a resolve in you so that you won't break when things get really hard. Y'all, the enemy, listen, the enemy to godliness is not suffering. Watch this. It's prosperity. You hear what I'm saying? The enemy to godliness is not suffering, it's prosperity. Here's why. If you're anything like me, anytime that I prosper, do you know what I do? I pat myself on the back. Man, I was really good. Obviously, I did that because I went to Harvard of the South, and I got a great education. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm really talented, and, and I grew this thing, and I'm better than you. No, it's only, it's only whenever I lean into God that I realize it wasn't me. And do you realize that whenever I think it's me, Watch this, you become independent and you walk away from God. It's the same thing we all do. And it's in that place that if you're not careful, you'll actually begin to die inside because it's all dependent on you. Every single time that I've leaned into God, my faith and my resolve has just gotten easier and better. And I'm just telling you, the next time that trial happens, it gives me more faith to walk with God in it. And we know this intuitively. We know it. We know that suffering is an opportunity to exercise our faith. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. And yet we avoid it like the plague. Listen, suffering is not God punishing you. Suffering is God growing your joy because your joy is ultimately found in a life connected to Jesus. One of the key words that you have to remember in the Christian life is interdependence. It's interdependence. It's what John 15 is all about. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Keep me connected to you. Make my life joy you. See, I love the way that Marianne Robinson, the, the, the novelist, said it. She says this. She says, the spirit of the time is one joyless of urgency. Let me say that again. I, I, the spirit of the time is one of joyless urgency. And that's what most of our lives feel like. We're so quick to escape. We're so quick to move on. We're so quick to get on with it. But there is something in the waiting and in the trusting that forms you, like a diamond that only gets formed when there's an immense amount of pressure over a long period of time. That's what the Christian life is like. Like R.T. Kendall said, suffering is a passport to great anointing. Y'all, there is something absolutely amazing about a person who has walked through a lifetime of suffering and they've come out the other side. I'm just telling you like an old sage that you can sit with with wisdom. There's something about looking at a couple who has walked through marriage and they've done it for 40 or 50 years. Most of the time, it's not because their marriage was easy. It's because they decided to persevere. God builds a resolve in you that actually forms your faith through a lifetime of trials. So here it is. Write it down. 
Trials are necessary to exercise your faith and form you into the humble person that depends on God for joy. That's super important because joy, joy is inextricably tied to a dependence on God. So listen to this. If dependence is the key, then suffering is to your advantage. You hear what I'm saying? If dependence is the key, then suffering is to your advantage. Y'all, God's not mad at you. He's not punishing you. He hasn't abandoned you. And can I just say this? Satan's not out to get you. Like, in the Christian life, I swear, we all, we, 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 Christians love to blame Satan for everything. Right? Oh, Satan, I did that. Satan gave you diabetes. No, that was probably the 14 double cheeseburgers, you know, over the long course of time that did that. Matter of fact, it was, here's, here's how it happened. I'm telling you, I, I've, I've had a little perspective over the last couple of years, okay? Some of y'all decided to walk away from Chick-fil-A and go over to, Papa, to Popeye's, get that chicken sandwich. You caused a global pandemic, and that's where it all came from. It wasn't Satan. I hear Satan gave you, and there's allergy seasons. Mm, Satan. It wasn't Satan. You decided to put that cat in your house. Like you play with the devil, that's what happens. You get bit. You know what I'm saying? Y'all, sometimes it is Satan, but it's not always him. Listen to me. It's not always him. Sometimes God has good reasons to allow you to go through what you're going through, and you just have to trust him. Like a good surgeon. Like a good surgeon. Sometimes he's got to cut you to heal you. You, you ever had to try to have that conversation with a kid? I remember taking our daughter to, the, uh, to Duke Hospital for a surgery that she needed and, and trying to talk to her about, hey, look, you're not going to understand what's about to happen. You're about to get hurt really badly. And as they hurt you really badly, they're going to heal you. That conversation doesn't go well. You know what you tell your kid? Sweetie, I love you, and I just need you to trust me. Everything's going to be okay. Sometimes that's what God does. Sometimes he's just like, I can't tell you why you're going to go through it because you don't have the capacity to understand See, at the end of the day, saving faith is enduring faith. It's a faith that has to walk with Jesus through it all. So there's this tension. There's this tension that we live with here in the South between superficial Christianity and the real world. Right? Superficial Christianity works in a Christian subculture where it all works out and everything, everything's great and life's going well. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Superficial Christianity is that, that picture of Jesus in your grandma's church basement in the Sunday school classroom. He's white Jesus looking like Bobby O, and he just says, pray a prayer, and everything's going to be okay, Jesus. The problem is, then you went off to college, and then you had that professor that told you that your Bible wasn't real. Then you got partying and different things, and all of a sudden, your faith became shaky because you lived with superficial Jesus. Y'all, that Jesus, that Jesus cannot handle suffering because that Jesus told you you don't need to, told you you're going to be okay. Just stick it out. The reality is, is that Jesus kills people. Jesus doesn't make a ton of sense in that life. When you get hit upside the head enough times with this world, you will begin to fall apart and withdraw if you don't understand who God really is. That's, by the way, that's what happened to Peter. When Jesus is about to get crucified and, and Peter is running away, he had had the easy life. He was, he was the man. And then all of a sudden, the middle school girl comes up and his faith is just shaken completely because you walk with superficial Jesus. What we need to realize is that enduring faith isn't superficial faith. Enduring faith is a faith that is dependent on God that's forged through pressure. 
oftentimes, listen, you have to go through trials just to understand, do I really believe this stuff? Because it's real easy until you actually have to believe it. But there is something sweet in the middle. Let me say it one more time. If the key is for you to have a faith that lasts for the rest of your life, then the most loving thing that God can do is allow you to go through trials to make sure that your faith is real and not superficial, that it's solid. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hey, let me ask you this. What if trials are actually a gift to make you complete, to make you whole? C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in his book, The Problem with Pain. He, he talked about this time when he opened up the newspaper. For you guys that are as old as I am, that's a sheet of paper that actually had the news in it, not my iPad. Uh, and he read about World War II and how the, the, the war was imminent and how things were about to get really bad. And he said for the next 48 hours, he was like in shambles scared, praying to God, walking in, like relying on God. He thought everything was going to come to an end. And then he said, like a dog after a bath, he ran right back out into the mud because that's what you always do. He, he, said, he said, we become so fixated for a short period of time that we walk away. And again, don't we do the same thing? Think about it. You remember when the war in Ukraine started? For about 48 hours, we we're all humanitarians. Now we just wonder why we keep giving them so much money. Matter of fact, for some of you, there's still a war going on in Ukraine. Because we just move on so quickly, right? You get food poisoning. And for like 48 hours, you, you've become the greatest Christian ever. You've, you've pledged your life to Jesus. You're going to go, you'll be a monk, a missionary, whatever. God, if you just get me through this. And then three days later, you're back at Popeye's and you wonder why you got food poisoning, right? Listen, God sometimes allows us to go through things and they happen because God wants to make you perfect, complete and whole. And if you just escape from it quickly, you miss it. By the way, this might be a good time for me to stop and say this. Listen, just because, just in the same way that it's not all Satan's fault, like he's not tormenting you, listen, there are some things in this world that's not just all God either. Let, let, me, let me say it this way. There are going to be things in your life that you're just never going to understand, okay? You're going to have that big why question, like, why is this happening I remember sitting down, I've told you this before, with a friend of mine at Duke Hospital after his five-year-old son took his last breath. And we're sitting in the hospital room and crying together right before we walked his son down to say goodbye for the very last time. And he looked at me, and we, we were really good friends, so we could have this conversation. He says, Billy, I just want to know why. And I looked at him, I said, Jay, if God told you why, would that make any difference at all? He said, no. <laughs> why do you want to know why then? Listen, for many of us, you're never going to know. You're never going to know, but that's where trust comes in. Okay, that's where you have to lean on what you do know about God. You have to pull back and go to the character of God, the, the certainty of God. You have to know that God will ultimately fix things. You've got to go back to what you know to be true. Y'all, I have questions too. When I read this Bible, I have questions. When I walk through your suffering, I have questions but I don't base my life off of arguments from silence. You hear what I'm saying? I don't base my life off of what I don't know. I base my life off the character of God. What I do know is that God himself put on flesh to live my perfect life, to die my death, and he rose from the dead in Jesus. And if he cares that much about me, then there must be good reasons for why I'm going through what I'm going through that I just don't know. 
Again, like trying to explain to your child the intricacies of the world. It's impossible. Y'all, that's the point. You just have to go off of what you know. I'm going to base my life off of what I know about God, and I'm going to look through the lens of that and not my unanswered questions. So James says, have steadfastness. I love this. It's one of the most important Greek words in the entire Bible. It's the construction of two words put together, and it literally means to remain under. Here's what he's saying. Steadfastness or endurance or the faith that actually will make you become complete is a faith that's only forged when you remain under your suffering, when you sit in it for a little while. You see that? When you run from it, you'll never actually become the complete person that God has called you to be. You have to remain under. Listen, time, time, time. Time is God's greatest tool to make you into this person that you're supposed to be. Can I say it this way? Some of you are never going to grow into the full and complete person that God has called you to be because you just quit too quickly. You just quit too quickly. You leave church at the first sign of controversy. You quit your job the moment that adversity hits. When you and your spouse get to an inroad, you just quit and start over. Y'all, there's something to just sticking it out in the middle, to remain under, that God does something great in your life. Now, let me say this, because I need to say this, okay? I'm not talking about abuse. This is really important. Some of you have gone to churches and you've remained under abusive situations because you heard something that the pastor said. Listen, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. If you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out of that and get to a safe space, okay? And if you don't know how to, come to us. We'll help you do that. Like, that's really important. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about letting people take advantage of you. We're talking about in the, in the middle of the hardness of life, sit in it for a second, okay? Sit in it and let God do his work. That's what enduring faith looks like. That's where faith is actually forged. That's steadfastness. That's endurance. That's toughness. It creates a maturity in the Christian life. It's the trials that God reveals himself to you. See, it's in the middle. It's in the remaining under that God himself walks into that space and meets you there. See that? If you run too quickly, you don't experience God. And that's what God wants. It's a perspective shift. If you spend your entire life trying to avoid pain and running from it when it gets hard, you're never going to mature into the person who God has called you to be because you have to remain under in order to experience God in the middle. And when you experience God in the middle, that's where you mature. That's where the steadfastness is formed. That's where you have this enduring faith. Even nature shows you this. You know this, you know, if you take a butterfly and you take it out of its cocoon too quickly, it will die because it hasn't suffered enough to get itself out in order to live a life. Or if you take a chicken that's trying to get out of an egg and you help it get out, they don't survive because there's a process of remaining under or forging itself through the suffering that actually gives it the resolve to live this life. That's what it looks like. The most loving thing that God has done is to give his children the space to walk through the struggle of life so that they can mature into the people that God has called them to be. You know this. How many of you know that kid? Don't name them. But how many of you know that kid that you just can't stand because they've always had it all? Right? You don't want your kids to hang out with them. They're spoiled all the time. They've never had to endure anything. They don't remain under. Right? Every time that there's an adversity, they get rescued by their parents. 
And then they end up living in their basement until they're 33 and they don't get a job and then here we are. Y'all, what you have to do, you have to commit to staying and not running. You have to commit to remaining and enduring and then you'll learn. You'll learn what God is trying to teach you. That's wisdom, which is exactly what he says in verse 5. See, if you lack any wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. You know what I love about this? There are nine different words in the New Testament for prayer, and James uses the most simple word of all. Ask. Now, if you'll just ask, God is sitting up there saying, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you. Just ask me, and I'll give you as much wisdom as you could ever want. By the way, did you notice what he didn't say? This is so important. He did not say, ask for relief. Think about that. Isn't that what we all do? When you sit there and you're praying, you're like, God, if you'll just, if you'll just heal me, if you'll just make me better, if you'll just do this or get me out of this situation, James doesn't say, no, 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 that's not the piece of advice. Hey, church, as you're being persecuted throughout the entire world, you don't need to be, re- you don't need to be relieved, you need wisdom. You need to learn how to interpret what God is doing so that you're wise. Y'all, the primary thing that you need is not relief, you need wisdom to see the world differently. And you just need to ask. And you know what he'll do? He'll give it to you without reproach. You know what that means? Here's what that means. Reproach means like, you, you, ever, you ever like had to come back to somebody as you did something wrong and you feel like you had to grovel and then they, they rubbed it in a little bit? That's not what God does. Without reproach means that he's not going to offend you or even say anything. He's just going to give it to you. Matter of fact, it says he'll give it to you generously, liberally. God is waiting to shower you with his wisdom, if you'll just ask. You don't have to feel embarrassed. It doesn't matter what you've went through. It doesn't matter what you've done. Just ask and he'll give it. The most practical thing you can do when life throws you a curveball is ask God to give you wisdom to walk through your suffering. If you'll do that, you'll have joy. Because wisdom helps you to reframe what you're going through and see it through the lens of God. So you see beauty in the battle. Many of you know, if, if you're new here, you might not know, this has probably been the most difficult summer my family has ever had. Uh, my wife was in the hospital most of the summer, and my, my son was born really prematurely. And I'm going to be honest with you, for most of the summer, I didn't know, and this is not hyperbole. In my mind, I didn't know if my wife was going to survive or my son was going to survive. And there were many days where we were just like, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, there were four things that I really believe that God taught us that he was doing in the midst of all of it. And honestly, all four of these things were true regardless if our situation changed or not. Here's number one. He reminded me that we have an absolutely amazing church family that cares deeply about us. Y'all, I've always known that, but I've never had to experience it. It was the first time in our life that we became needy. We're always the ones trying to meet everybody else's needs. And I'm just telling you, we were overwhelmed by your love and generosity. Here's number two. God provided every need we had every single day. And we had a lot of them. We had a lot of them. Matter of fact, you guys provided so much and God provided so much that we were just overwhelmed at times. Like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. Number three was this. God looked, as audibly as I can remember, it was almost like God's like, hey, look, you have never, ever in your life slowed down enough to just stay home with your kids. I'm telling you, I experienced a deep relationship with my kids over the last several months, being home with them 24-7. He gave me appreciation for how hard it is that what my wife does. 
and I love them. And we, we, we build a bond that we would have never had, and I don't know if we'll ever get that opportunity again. Number four, it forced Allison and I to date again in a way that we hadn't. Right? We, we played board games together. We talked. Y'all, we've been married 11 years. If you've been married a long time, you don't really talk a whole lot. We talked for hours and, and like had great conversations because what else are you going to do when you're stuck in a hospital room by yourself? It was the most beautiful three and a half months that I never want to go through again. Right? But that's wisdom. Wisdom is God giving you the gift to interpret your trials properly. Relief, relief can be the enemy of growth in the Christian life. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Here's the second thing that I find fascinating that James did not tell you to ask for. The first thing he says is don't ask for relief, ask for wisdom. Notice the second one, don't ask for knowledge, ask for faith. You notice that, right? He doesn't say, hey, do you want to know why you're going through it? He never mentions knowledge. Y'all, here's why that's so important. We have more knowledge than we've ever had in human history, and we can't figure out what a boy and a girl is. You hear what I'm saying? Like, we can send somebody to the moon, but we can't figure out how to stop poverty in the world. We don't need more knowledge. We need wisdom. There's a difference. Let me explain it to you like this. There's this sophomore student that um, was at Duke University, and he was studying for his final exam. He, he had to he had to ace this final in biology in order to get into med school. And when I say he was studying, he wasn't studying like the kids that go to Harvard or the South study in Statesboro, all right? He was studying like a Duke student, like all-nighters all the time. He, he worked really hard. He studied really hard. He walked into the auditorium for his final exam, and there were no blue books. There were no multiple choice. There was nothing. As a matter of fact, there was only 25 pictures on the wall and the pictures depicted nothing but defeat of different species of birds. And his biology professor said the final exam is for you to identify the species of the birds simply by the pictures. The student was like, you're insane. This is insane. I've worked the entire semester, and I know everything that there is to know about this biology, and you're telling me that this is what the class is, tired, class is based on? The professor's like, you must do it. That's the final. I won't do it, he said. I'm going to walk out. He said, walk out. Go ahead. Go ahead and you'll fail. He said, whatever. I'll fail. I don't care. The professor says, what is your name, son? He starts rolling up his pants, takes off his shoes, and he says, you tell me what my name is, sir. You tell me my name. See, the difference between knowledge and wisdom, knowledge might be that he knew his foot. Wisdom is knowing how to respond in that circumstance, right? right? Knowledge is knowing how to identify the birds. Wisdom is knowing how to respond. Knowledge is knowing the truth. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. Knowledge is knowing that 32 degrees is cold. Wisdom is living in Atlanta and not Minneapolis. You know what I'm saying? Knowledge is knowing a lot about God. Wisdom is walking with God and experiencing him in your situation. By the way, that's where joy comes from. Joy comes from the presence of God in your circumstance, not relief in your situation. You might never know why you are walking through what you are walking through, and yet you need to ask God to give you wisdom and you need to have faith as you ask. And if you will do that, he will give it to you liberally, generously. He will walk with you and he will interpret your situation through his lens. He might not change your situation though. And here's the deal. 
faith is only grown through a life of knowing and walking and experiencing Jesus. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that faith and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Y'all, James is showing you that the reverence of God is the key to understanding life. You only revere God when you know him, when you know how big he is and how intimate he is at the same time, how transcendent and holy and yet personal at the same time. It's only then you'll know who your God is. That's, that, by the way, that's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Let me just read it real quickly. Therefore, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, he, hear that, I'm not going to go through this, but you are surrounded by a bunch of people who have gone before you. They're cheering you on. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, sin that's grabbing onto you. Lay it aside. Why? Let us run this race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not your circumstances, the founder and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy, there it is, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's full circle. Fame and success, that is not what's going to bring you joy in this life. Y'all, the good life is when you look to the crowd of people who have gone before you, the history of people whose shoulders you're standing on, and then you look to your God who walked with joy in his suffering, and then you choose to walk the same way and interpret your life through what you know to be true about God himself. I love the old hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know and saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you, how you've proved over and over, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, for grace to trust him more. Y'all, that's the hymn of life. How sweet it is to trust in Jesus, to take him at his word. It takes all the pressure off. It doesn't change your circumstances, but it allows you to see it properly. It allows you to stop being what James calls a double-minded man, a double-minded man that walks with faith, and, and, and he walks with faith in one hand and doubt in the other. Listen, when you walk like this, you walk fearfully because you haven't spent enough time cultivating your life with Jesus. There's a difference. A lot of us know a lot about Jesus, but have we trusted in him? Have we cultivated and built a relationship? When you stop letting your circumstances dictate your reactions to life and you just live your life based on what you know to be true about Jesus, that's when everything changes. Real quickly, real quickly, here's what you know. Your faith is secure in Jesus. Because the gospel, because Jesus was punished in your place, God can never punish you. You realize that, right? One day when you will stand before Jesus, what you are going to hear is, well done, you good and faithful servant, if you live with Jesus, if you walk with him. So what are you afraid of? Number two, your life is the worst it will ever get if you are in Christ. Do you realize that? That one day, God is going to turn over the tapestry and it's all going to make sense. And yet, right now, this is the closest to hell you will ever get. Because Jesus has paid it all. If you are a Christ follower, you get heaven. It's going to get better. So what are you afraid of? Number three, your suffering is temporary. Again, because one day, one day, because Jesus paid it all. One day, God is going to wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more, and you will never, ever, ever suffer again. What you are going through is temporary. So what are you afraid of? See, instead of focusing on your circumstances, you need to learn to focus on the God of your circumstances. Y'all, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? 
He knows exactly what he's doing. He is present in the middle. His character is love. His aim is your holiness. See, God has your best in mind, and his glory is primary. And when he puts those two things together, you can experience joy no matter what. Y'all, the problem isn't God. It never has been. The problem is our doubts about God. That's what he means. Look at verse um, 6 through 8 again. That's exactly what he's saying. See, honestly, what good is there in doubting? What good is there in doubting? Doubting does nothing for you. Doubting does absolutely nothing for you. Matter of fact, here's what doubting does. It, it puts you in a position where you choose to believe your circumstance and stop believing in your God. Have you ever been on the ocean when it's raging? Like he says right here. Have you ever been deep sea fishing, right, where you spend 80% of the time hurling over the side of the boat, 12% of the time fishing? You, you, you know what happens? You get thrown around like a rag doll, right, like this. You know that's what a life of doubt feels like? It's constantly shifting back and forth between belief and doubt. You know what that does? It makes you throw up. It, make, it makes your life be unresolved. That's what he means by a double-minded man, one who's always worried. I tell my wife all the time, we can't write our own worst stories. You, you know what I'm talking about? Here's what it looks like. You're going to get a stomach ache, and you're going to start Googling, and WebMD's going to come up. And you're going to find out that you're going to die of cancer in like three weeks on WebMD. Right? And then you're going to be, you're going to freak out. You're, I don't know what to do. That's what life feels like all the time for people who are constantly doubting, constantly in this struggle, right, between what I know and what I don't know. You're always worried about the unknown. You're always worried about the future. I told you this. Time is a commodity that you don't own. So you're worried about something that's not even promised to you. And for what? For what? Jesus says this in Matthew 6. What good does it do you? The only thing it does is makes you double-minded. That word double-minded means two-souled. It means that your soul is going in opposite directions all the time. One is trusting in Jesus and one is walking away from Jesus. Do you know what that does? It only creates mayhem. It only rips you apart. At some point, you are going to have to choose. Do I want to live a life that trusts in Jesus? To know him based on his character and have the resolve that no matter what happens, I trust you. Or am I going to be controlled by the raging waves of this world? uncertain life. It's a choice. I tell you this all the time. Jesus has proven his love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. What James is saying is choose to trust him. Choose to trust him. You will go through trials. This life is not easy. And yet, the greatest power is at your disposal, the presence of God, if, if, if you will remain under and not that's where staying faith comes from. That's where enduring faith comes from. That's where saving faith comes from. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those that you call children. God, that we would see your goodness in the land of the living. Right now, where we are, in the middle of our battle, that we would trust you. Oh, to Jesus, how sweet it is to trust you evermore. Help us do so. Amen.